Braden, come up here for a minute. We didn't practice this. We're just going to start with an illustration. All right. So I have $20 here. I'm going to hand it to Braden. Okay? It's exactly the way that I wanted you to respond based on the passage. Go sit down. Okay. Go sit down. So we didn't rehearse that. Um, <laughs> The response that he had is the response that the people of Israel have in this passage. God holds out riches. They grab it, they run away. They don't acknowledge it. God holds out to them in relationship. They don't acknowledge it. They go away from him. As we look at a passage like this, Hosea chapter 10 and 11, we have... All sorts of different illustrations or phrases or ideas that Hosea is using to illustrate this idea. God's constant character and the um, faithlessness, the idolatry, and all of those sorts of things that are going on for the people of Israel. For example, I want to highlight for you in chapter 10, it says, Israel is a luxuriant vine. He produces fruit for himself. The more his fruit, the more altars he made. The richer his land, the better he made the sacred pillars. Their heart is faithless. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their sacred pillars. Then we see chapter 11 and verse 2. The more they called them, that's probably the prophets calling to the people to repent, the more they went from them, they kept sacrificing the Baals and burning incense to the idols. But God was the one who was there for them. God was the one who was kind to them. God was the one who delivered them. So we have, first of all, this idea, the more kindness God showed to them, the more they've committed themselves to idolatry. $20, I hand a Braden. He grabs it away. He runs to his seat, admittedly at my request, but still... It illustrates for us what's going on in this passage. The more God gave them, the more they said, this is ours, we're the reason for it, we'll take credit for it, we're going to spend it on our idolatry. The more God reached out to them in kindness and relationship that we see in chapter 11, the more they said, we don't need you, we are good, we're going to go our own way. Riches, turned to idolatry, and relationship turned to idolatry. God says his response will be, chapter 10, verse 2, I will break down your altars and sacred pillars. If your response to the more I bless you is to spend it more on your idolatry, then no matter how strong and how fine you build your altars and your pillars and your means of idolatry, I will knock them down and destroy them. No matter how far you run away from me, chapter 11, you are not going to escape the things that I am doing to get your attention and bring you back to myself. We see that in chapter 11, verses 5 through 7, and chapter 10, verse 2. What was the problem that was going on for the people of Israel? Well, 
chapter 10, verse 3, Surely now they will say, We have no king, for we do not revere the Lord. As for the king, what can he do for us? We saw references to the idea of the king back in chapter 5 and verse 1. Listen, O house of the king, for the judgment applies to you, for you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread out on Tabor. And then he says, I will chastise all of them. We saw it in chapter 7, verse 5. On the day of our king, the princes become sick with the heat of wine and um, just are basically worthless for leading the people. Chapter 8, verse 4, they've set up kings, but not by me. They've appointed princes, but I did not know it. With their silver and gold, they've made idols for themselves that they might be cut off. And then we'll see it again in chapter 13, verses 10 through 11. Where now is your king that he may save you in all your cities? And your judges of whom you requested, give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. It's the fascinating history of Israel regarding a king. In Genesis chapter 49, God promises that from the tribe of Judah, a great king will come. So God planned to give them a king long before they ever had a king, back when they were nomads and wanderers and slaves in the land of Egypt. And then they came back to the land of Egypt and they just had Moses and others to lead them. And then the time of the judges in all of those things, God's always planned to give them a king. So the having of a king was not bad. The problem was the way in which they went about getting a king and the reason for which they wanted one. How did they get a king? They said, Samuel, you're the judge that God has appointed. You are sort of more of a legal figure and a leader, but you're not a king who leads us into battle. We want a king that leads us into battle. We don't want to have to rely on God's presence uh, as represented by the Ark of the Covenant. We want a king who can be our figurehead, who can lead us into battle, give us victory against our enemies. Essentially, so they could be like all the other nations. The Canaanites, uh, the people of Egypt, the people of Syria, the people of Edom. They wanted to be like all the nations around them, the Philistines, and have a king to lead them into battle because then they didn't have to rely on God and they didn't have to rely on this person that they viewed perhaps as weak, the prophet Samuel. So they asked for the king. And God gave them a king, but God said through the prophet Samuel, uh, Samuel the judge prophesying, he says, here's what the king's going to do. He's going to tax you. He's going to take your sons as daughters and daughters as slaves. All of these sorts of things, there are going to be consequences of you seeking for a king when it wasn't the right time and there wasn't the right way. Then later on, they rejected the king that God gave them because you had Saul then you had David, and then you had David's son Solomon, Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Ten tribes of Israel break away, set up their own kingdom. They set up their own king. Now they come here, and because their king is worthless, they've said, what can he do to help us? Who's going to help us? We're on our own. The king's not going to help us. He's a drunk and he's a worthless fool. God's not going to help us because we don't want anything to do with God. They're in a very sad place in terms of their leadership and in terms of their relationship with God. As they have been faithless toward God, verse 2, they have also been faithless toward each other. Verse 4 is a fascinating image. Worthless oaths they use to make covenants and judgment sprouts like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. Well, what does that mean? Well, where there should be grain, where there should be justice, 
there is injustice, there is weeds. What is the net result of their turning away from God? The inhabitants of Samaria will fear for the calf of Beth-Avon. So they were supposed to be Bethel, the house of God, and they had become Beth-Avon, the house of vanity. They had set up a calf, a golden calf, much like the people did in the time of Moses, not necessarily to replace God, but to represent God, but still in violation of the system of worship God established with priests and sacrifice and where it was supposed to happen. They set up their own system of worship in a different place with different priests and other sacrifices and with this calf idol that was supposed to represent God but only led them away from God. They will fear for the calf. The people will mourn for it. Its idolatrous priests will cry out over it, over its glory since it is departed. The thing itself will be carried to Assyria as tribute to King Jerob, Ephraim will be seized with shame and Israel ashamed of its own counsel. Samaria will be cut off with her king like a stick on the surface of the water. Also the high places of Avon, the vanity, the sin of Israel will be destroyed. Thorn and thistle will grow on their altars. They'll say to the mountains, cover us, the hills fall on us. From the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel, there they stand. Will not the battle against the sons of iniquity take them over in Gibeah? All the peoples, when it is my desire, I will chastise them, and the peoples will be gathered against them, wherein they are bound for their double guilt. They have an idol that's supposed to represent God, but they worship the idol, not God, even though they made the idol as a means to worship God. But God said, said don't do that because you're going to worship the thing and not me. I think the parallel for us would be to the extent that we imagine God to be what we would like him to be in our minds, in our concept of God, instead of what the Bible declares him to be, we're doing the same kind of thing the Israelites did. They set up a calf. We say, God is a God that's good with whatever sin I like to do. If your sin is adultery, God's fine with adultery. If your sin is murder, God's fine with murder. If your sin is greed, God's fine with greed. What does that look like? Well, it looks like people who claim to be representatives of God and then live lives of adultery, and then when they get caught, they just go do it somewhere else. It looks like people who maybe don't go to the point of murder, but they express hatred toward other people, and they say, well, God is angry with sin, so that justifies me hating people, even though I hate them for reasons other than their sin. It looks like people who say, my heart is full of greed, but God wants me to be blessed and have lots of stuff. And so God is a God who wants me to be prosperous. And so that's why my greed is okay. We reimagine God according to the image of the sins that we want to justify. God's response to the people of Israel is to take away their idol. God's response to us is to take away our idols. As a nation, we are a nation that has been characterized by greed. What happened during all the things that took place during COVID? God destroyed our ability briefly for us to buy things and sell things and go on vacations and all of those sorts of things. And unfortunately, much like the people of Israel in the United States, instead of taking a moment to pause and say, why might this be going on? We divided into rival camps and started yelling at each other about a proper response to it instead of saying, why did this happen? 
I think it happened as a moment of reflection for us to consider where we were as a nation. And by and large, we did not do that. What have we done? We've gone right back to building all sorts of things and buying and selling and chasing after things and thinking that our lives will be full and satisfied if we have this thing or that thing or the other thing or this money or this situation or all of those sorts of things. It's not mutually exclusive with um, my point is we can see something as God's hand and also recognize that people are involved in the carrying out of it. Just like we can look at a hurricane or a tornado or something like that as being under God's sovereign control and yet also an opportunity for us to reflect. Well, how can I say this? Because in the book of Luke, Jesus is talking to some people. They say, hey, this tower fell down and it's killed some people. What did they do? And Jesus' response is, you don't need to worry about what they did as though they're more wicked than you are. You should pause and, and reflect on the fact that all of us are going to perish, all of us are going to die, and we need to be right with God. They're already with God or away from God. You need to worry about where you stand with God. And so I think when it comes to a lot of the things that go on in our lives, instead of looking at the destroying of our idols, like happened with the Israelites here, as an opportunity for us to reflect on our relationship with God, we see it as an opportunity to reflect or be upset about the fact that our way of life is not what we would want it to be. And in that respect, we're much like Jonah that we were looking at earlier this morning, where he said, I'm not getting my way, so God should change to meet what I want, and I'm going to sit here and wait until I get what I want, and I'm going to complain if I don't get what I want, and I know what God is like, but I don't want to be like that. That's the same response the people of Israel are having here. And Hosea is a contemporary of Jonah and all these other prophets, and so there is a reflection of this same sort of attitude. God is compassionate, but we won't be compassionate. God is holy, but we won't be pure. God is sovereign, but we'll act like he doesn't see what we're doing. The end result of all these things is not only is their idol carried away, but their king cast down like a stick that gets cut off and floats like driftwood on the water. All of their idols get destroyed. They run away from God's destruction, even though they can't escape, which is uh, sort of a precursor to the same sort of language in the book of Revelation. Hosea reminds them the reason for all these things happening is not God in the sense that it is his fault they're happening. Is God the reason that they're happening in that he's bringing these circumstances into their lives? Yes. But God is not arbitrary or capricious or fickle and causing them difficulty just to cause them difficulty God is bringing difficulty into the lives of the people of Israel because they're supposed to be his people and they're running after idols they're supposed to be following him and they're following themselves they're supposed to be acknowledging that he's the source of all these blessings like James says every good and perfect gift comes down from God the father above and instead they're saying we're the reason that we're rich Israel says I'm a vine I have produced fruit for myself why do vines produce fruit? Because of sun and water and care. If the vine says, I produce fruit, 
and I don't need anything else. I don't need the sun. I don't need the water. I don't need the air. I don't need all of these things. It's a stupid argument for the vine to make. But that was the attitude of the people of Israel. And that's easy for that to be the attitude that we have today. I don't need God. I am the reason for everything good I have accomplished in life. And so we blame God for what we think are the bad things, and we take credit for what we think are the good things, and all in all, we are turning away from God. We saw this reference to Gibeah in chapter 9, verse 9. They have gone deep in depravity, as in the days of Gibeah. For a long time, they've been following this pattern of idolatry. Will they not be overtaken? When it is God's desire, not their desire, he will chastise them. So they're guilty of idolatry. God had said, I'm going to chastise you, but chastising is different than destroying. Sometimes we think God is trying to destroy the people of Israel, and the reality is a lot of them starved or died due to drought connected with the starvation. A lot of them were killed in battle. But God's point in bringing all these things into their lives was not to get rid of the people as a whole. It was to seize their attention and get them to pause and say, why is all this calamity coming upon us? It's coming upon us because we've turned away from God. In the end of chapter 11, God uses a further analogy uh, of sowing and reaping. Says Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh, but I will come over her fair neck with a yoke. I will harness Ephraim, Judah will plow, Jacob will harrow for himself, sow with a view to righteousness, reap in according to, with kindness, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes to rain righteousness on you. Here's the image. Ephraim, you're like almost like uh, one of those animals you would see at the 4-H fair, right at the county fair. It's not an analogy a lot of us are familiar with because we are by and large living in the city, but uh, when I grew up in Indiana, we'd go up and visit uh, some of the cousins and we'd see they'd have have sheep or they have hogs. I don't think any of them ever, ever had a bull or anything like that, but they would take it to the county fair and they would show it and then it would be sold, and all those sorts of things. Um, Ephraim's attitude is kind of like, I'm the prize-winning animal at the county fair. Look at me. And God says, you're going to go work in the field. You're going to drag the plow. You're going to have hard labor. But then he says, you should be willingly doing this. Doing what? Sowing righteousness so that you would reap kindness, tilling the ground so that your hearts would be ready to receive what God wants to do in them. What were they doing instead? Verse 13, you have plowed wickedness, you have reaped injustice. When you live wickedly, the result is injustice for you and those around you. You have eaten the fruit of lies. Wickedness led to injustice, led to the result of all the lies they told along the way. Because you've trusted in your way, a tumult will arise among your people and your fortresses will be destroyed. As Shalman, probably an abbreviation for Shalmaneser, who is a king of Assyria, destroyed Beth Arbel, a a, a city uh, probably in the region of Naphtali in Israel on the day of battle. 
It says, When mothers were dashed in pieces with their children, thus it will be done with to you at Bethel because of your great wickedness. At dawn, the king of Israel will be completely cut off. Sowing and reaping. Actions have consequences. Turning away from God leads to chastisement. Following God leads to blessing. Not always material blessing, but the blessing of a relationship with God and the joy of salvation and all of those sorts of things. So we have the situation of the people that they sought out kings for themselves, went their own way. God said, I'm bringing justice against you. We have this imagery of sowing and reaping. You should sow righteousness and obedience and humility and all those sorts of things and find God's forgiveness and mercy and all of that. But instead, you are sowing, you are sowing wickedness, which is going to result in disaster for you. And if we stopped right there, we would come to the conclusion that God's basically done with Israel. But look at verse chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. God was the one who started the relationship with his people Israel. When the people were yet not much of a people, slaves in the land of Egypt, God took them out of the land of Egypt. There's a fascinating parallel to this in Matthew 2.15 in which God literally sends his son Jesus down to Egypt to escape the wrath of King Herod and then brings him back up out of Egypt. Not uh, Matthew says to fulfill. I don't think it's fulfill in terms of a historical prophecy. Uh, Hosea, I don't think, is saying mm, verse chapter 11, verse 1 is about Jesus. Hosea 11 verse 1 is looking back to what God did in delivering his people from Israel and talking about them collectively as God's son. And then Matthew looks back to what Hosea did and says, just as God brought the people of Israel up from Egypt and preserved them, God has brought Jesus up from Egypt having preserved him. And so there are these strong parallels between the experience of the people of Israel and the experience of Jesus Christ himself. They were in the wilderness he was in the wilderness. They were tempted. He was tempted. They were down in Egypt. He was down in Egypt. Every time that they failed, there's a corresponding success, which is too weak of a word, victory, accomplishment, something along those lines, where Jesus perfectly fulfills what they'd failed to do. God brings them up from Egypt. We would expect them to follow after God, just like Jesus comes up from Egypt and obeys God perfectly all his life. But the people of Israel, instead of following God when they come out of Egypt, they make a golden calf, which is exactly the sin that the people of Samaria are guilty of. They rebel against their leaders, which is exactly the thing that we see going on in verse 3. We have no king. We don't care about the king. We don't want to follow the king. The people of Israel fail over and over. God delivers them. God shows kindness to them. God has a relationship with them. And they reject their leaders, worship idols, turn away from God. And God sends them prophets. Verse 2, the more they called them, the more they went from them. Over and over and over again, God sends them prophets. Turn back to God, turn back to God, turn back to God, turn back to God. And what do they do? Sometimes they do for a very little while, and then they go back to sinning. And God says, but I'm the one who has been with you all along the way. I taught you to walk. I took you in my arms. You didn't know that I healed you. And then he goes back to the, uh, the imagery of the, the agricultural imagery. You're like this animal that I led and I trained and I domesticated and I fed you and I 
I gave you shelter. Then you act like it was all your own work. So he says in verse 5, They will not return to the land of Egypt. Uh, There seems to be a contrast in chapter 11, verse 5, and chapter 11, verse 11, because it says they'll come trembling like birds from Egypt. But verse 5 says they will not go to the land of Egypt. So how can they come back if they didn't go? I think probably the best explanation is as we look at returning to Egypt as an imagery for them going to Egypt for help instead of God, God saying, you're not going to find any help in Egypt. And yet there is the reality that as a nation, Egypt conquers parts of Israel and some of them are carried away into captivity. So they don't, in the entirety of themselves, go back like they did for deliverance in the days of of Abraham and then later Joseph. Some of them are carried away and so they can return, as we see at the end of the chapter. Instead, he says, Assyria will be their king. So they don't go back to Egypt and find deliverance, though sometimes they had alliances with Egypt. Assyria comes down and takes over their whole land. Why? Not because God is trying to be unkind to them, but rather, verse 5, they refused to return. Verse 7, my people are bent on turning from me. The prophets say, turn to God. The people say, We are turning this way. So the reason for their captivity is because they keep turning away from God instead of turning to God. But then we come to the end of the chapter and we see God's compassion toward his people. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? Admon Zeboim were Canaanite kings who were defeated in, I think, Genesis chapter 15. Uh... And that whole story where Lot is captured and Abraham goes after him to deliver him. He says, I'm not going to treat you like those who are delivered. I'm not going to treat you like Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm not going to treat you like these who are cast aside. My heart is turned over. My compassion is kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. Why doesn't God destroy the people of Israel even though that is exactly what they deserve for having run away from him? Because God says, I am faithful even when you're not. Verse 9, I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. I will not come in wrath. Because I am God, because I am holy, because I do not change, I will show compassion to you. I will deliver you, though you do not deserve my compassion, though you do not deserve my deliverance, and it's going to be a hard road to get there. He's not saying I will spare you the chastisement. They're going to go into captivity. But he says I'm not going to utterly destroy you. God will rouse himself in power. He will roar like a lion and his sons will come trembling from the west like birds from Egypt, doves from the land of Assyria, and I will settle them in their houses, says the Lord. God is going to call and summon his people and in that moment they will not say no. And he will deliver them. So what does this have to do with us? Turn over to Luke chapter 15. Luke 15 verse 11. And Jesus said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. 
And about many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And when he, have gla he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you never given me a young goat, so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. It's the context of this story. Jesus said all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. What does this story of Jesus and this experience in the life of Jesus have to do with the book of Hosea? Riches that were squandered, relationship that was rejected, compassion when there was repentance. Now here's the interesting thing about Luke 15. The ones who were repenting were the ones that everybody thought had no chance with God. The tax collectors, the ones who cheated people so much that Zacchaeus said, I'm going to pay back four times what I stole to show that I've actually repented because otherwise nobody's going to believe it. The sinners, the people who are themselves people who are committing all sorts of sins and know it. And in contrast, the religious leaders in Jesus' day, the ones who know all the right answers, the ones who believe that they are the best and closest to God, had no desire to repent. They're like the older brother in this story. God is like the father. And the sinners, in verse 1, are the younger son. But go back to Hosea 10 and 11 for a moment in your mind. The people of Israel were actually the younger brother in their actions, but the older brother in their response. We're going to use these riches for whatever we want. And when it runs out, we're going to plead with people to have compassion on us so we can keep enjoying the things that we want, even though the reason that it ran out is our own fault, even though the reason that we're in a miserable state is our own fault. 
the younger son, the prodigal son, the one who ran away from home, wasted all his father's mother money, ignored the relationship for a long time, he realized that he needed to repent. The people of Israel, despite the warning of Hosea, think that they're the older brother. We have kept all your commandments, God. We do all the sacrifices we're supposed to do, never mind the fact that on this day we go and do the sacrifice to you, and on the next day we go and burn incense to the moon goddess. Never mind the fact that we sacrifice a sheep here, and on the next day we sacrifice a child to Molech. Never mind the fact that we bring an offering to you, but we say this is all our doing when you're the one who gave it to us in the first place. We have kept all, our, all your commandments, God. We have nothing that we need to do. Why haven't you ever shown us any kindness? The answer is that the younger brother and the older brother were the same. The older brother just didn't realize it. He thought that because he didn't run far away and didn't do all these obvious things, that he had kept the law perfectly. It's like the story where Jesus has uh, the man come to him and he says, I've kept the law my whole life. What more do I need to do? And Jesus says, sell all that you have and feed the poor. And he goes away sorrowful because he has a lot of things. The point is not that every one of us is called to sell everything we have and feed the poor. The point was he loved his money more than he loved following after Jesus. The older brother loved his self-righteousness more than he loved following after God. And so, not realizing he's just as sinful as the obvious sinner, he thinks that he can look down on him and say that he's perfect before God. And the point of this passage in Luke 15, and the point of the passage in Hosea 10 and 11, is everybody needs to repent. Whether you think that you have done a great sin or have not done a great sin, all of us need to repent. Because there are constantly ways in which we, like the people of Israel, are reimagining God according to what we would like him to be so that we can get away with what we would like to do instead of seeing God as he is described in the Bible, like a lion who roars, like a God who is the leader of a host of angelic armies, a God who sees all, knows all, directs all, from whom there is no hiding what goes on in our hearts. If we acknowledge and worship the God of the Bible as he describes himself, then there is no place for idolatry. Because where can you go worship your idol that God doesn't see? Where can you go offer sacrifice to your false God that God doesn't know? You can't. The only way that we are able to do what the people of Israel did is to be like them in this passage, to be like the older brother in Luke 15, and to claim to follow God because we have external conformity to certain things that God has required of us when the external conformity is not what God wanted in the first place as the point of it. Did God say to the Israelites, do sacrifices? Yes. But the point was not do sacrifices and love idols in your heart. The point was do sacrifices because you love me within. So I think the message of Hosea 10 and 11, 
parallel with the message of Luke 15, parallel with the message of Jonah, is that prodigals, we need to seek our compassionate God. We need to do that first at the point of salvation. We need to continue to do that all throughout our lives because we continue to have moments where God reveals new areas in our lives that we are sinning against him, that need to be changed to be like him. But none of that is possible if we focus too much on the sinning part of it and not enough on the who God is part of it. Because it does us no good to recognize that we're sinners if God is a God who doesn't forgive sinners. What is God like in Hosea 11? What is God like in Luke 15? What is God like today? God is a God who has no uh, patience for the sin itself, but is very patient and merciful towards sinners. God is a God who sees sin as an abomination and yet has compassion on those who have committed those abominations and gives them opportunity to repent and to come to himself. But when's the moment that we need to do that? The moment that we need to do that is whenever we hear God's word proclaimed and we are reminded of who God is and we're reminded of who we are and we say, God, I don't deserve your love. I don't deserve your mercy. I don't deserve your kindness. But you've shown it to me anyway. Thank you. I have turned away from my sin, assuming there's been that point at which you started doing that, and I continue to turn away from my sin to follow after you. The people of Israel didn't listen to the admonition that they were sinners or to the hope that God would forgive them if they repented. But you and I don't have to walk that same path. The New Testament says that the Old Testament, all these stories and the words of the prophets and all these things were recorded not only because they're true, not only because they teach who God is, but so that we would learn from these things. The good examples, the bad examples, all of it together. So the question for us is, are we going to learn from the example and to the extent that we are prodigals, which is far more often than we admit, do we throw ourselves on the mercies of a compassionate God or do we stubbornly persist in sin like the people of Israel did until God has to take every last thing from us so that we will worship and follow him. The ordeal that God takes the people of Israel through between the end of the book of Hosea and the beginning of the New Testament is an extraordinarily difficult thing. If they had repented prior to God bringing them through that period of chastisement, it would, I think, not have been as severe and not have been as long. Or perhaps not have happened at all. But God was so concerned about the holiness of his people that they would be devoted to him and not to their idols, that he was willing to go to extraordinary lengths to bring them back to himself. And if God was willing to do that with an entire nation, and if God's character doesn't change... Where does that leave you and me? If we stubbornly persist in loving a particular sin, in refusing to walk after God, in receiving the gifts that God has given us, and thinking that we can take credit for them and we don't have to acknowledge him and we don't have to follow him, then I think much like the people of Israel, there is an escalating process of chastisement 
that God uses to bring his people back to himself. I don't say that to say that God is this bad God out to get you. I say this to say, much like a human father would say if a child was being irresponsible, here are the increasing consequences until you stop doing the thing that you're doing. If you have a teenager and he's being reckless, it's not love to say, oh, keep driving your car. We were coming down... uh, um, Woodward yesterday in the big moving truck and there's this kid probably like 17 in a little Miata or something and he's just zipping in between traffic and he's like like if you cut in front of me I can't stop this thing I hope I hoped he didn't and he didn't he actually went around finally if somebody's acting that way the loving thing is not to say keep doing what you're doing it's great The loving thing is to do what you need to do to arrest his attention so that he stops being foolish, so that he stops going his own way, because what's the end result of that foolishness? It's destruction. You drive recklessly and cut off a semi, your little sports car is going to get crushed. What's better, taking away the keys and having him resent you for a little while or, or seeing him go to the point of death because of his recklessness and his foolishness? God is a loving God, so the reason that he chastised the people Israel, the reason that he does the same in our lives, is so that we will acknowledge that we're sinners, throw ourselves on his mercy as being a compassionate God, and be spared the ultimate consequences of death and destruction that is the end result of failing to repent. Luke 15. We are all in some sense prodigals. Hosea 10 and 11 But even for prodigals, there is a compassionate God. Have you acknowledged that you're a sinner? Do you continue to throw yourself on God's mercy? If you do, you will find that he is a faithful God. Let's pray. Father, what this looks like specifically in our daily lives is something that I hope to talk about more even this afternoon, but I pray that you would help us to be considering these things in our hearts because you see our hearts and you know the things that are areas of sin for us, anger and greed and lust and selfishness and pride and all of these other sorts of things. Sometimes we can hide them from the people around us, sometimes we can't, but we can never hide them from you. Use your word and the power of your spirit to convict our hearts help us to remember the sort of God that you are so that we don't despair as we see our sin but we turn to you for help You are the one who heals. You are the one who feeds. You're the one who leads and protects and cares and delivers and takes us where we need to go. Even in the moments when we're blind to it. Help us not to be blind and the more you bless us, the more to spend it on sin. The more that you reach out to us as our loving Father, the more to think that we don't need you and we're good on our own.
Help us to see the sin in our hearts honestly. Face it head on. Find your strength. Defeat the temptations. Find your mercy and forgiveness and by your grace turn to follow after you the way you want us to. Lord, I ask that you would not let us rest if we go from here and there are things that we are loving in our hearts. Could be money. Could be sexual pleasure. Could be the esteem, the popularity of people around us approving of what we do. Could be some sort of thing that we really, really enjoy doing, tasting, feeling, whatever it is, Lord, that is something that we are loving instead of you. By your grace, help us to cast it aside before you have to break our idols. We thank you, Lord, both for the soberness and the hope that is found in a passage like this. Thank you for bringing us here today. In Christ's name, amen.